good evening, everyone. Good to see y'all. Welcome to Centerpoint. Um, we are at the cusp of Ezra chapter 6 uh, in our study. There are study guides um, that I just passed out. If for some reason you didn't get one, would like one. Got some extra copies up here, as well as a prayer guide if you'd like to grab that over on that bench. But we are um, past the halfway point, I believe, in Ezra. And so I will begin reading in chapter 6, where Ezra writes, Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put in hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 
And as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, it is amazing to look back over redemptive history and see how even when your people were faithless and you disciplined them, even sending them into exile, you still remain faithful to your promises to bring them back, to rebuild their way of life, to rebuild their community, and to eventually bring your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from that community to be our lamb of God, to be our Passover lamb, uh, to shed his blood, to free us from slavery to our sin. And so we rejoice when we look back and see the ways in which you have worked to build your people over the years. We ask for your spirit's help as we study these words together. Would you apply uh, these points to our hearts and give us ears to hear and hearts to obey what you reveal to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'd like to bring out three uh, main life application points from this passage. Uh, they are, first of all, pressing on in spite of opposition. We all have opposition that comes our way. Anytime we try to do something for the Lord, we can expect opposition to come. Uh, but we need to press on in spite of that. Uh, secondly, is prospering through preaching or prospering through prophesying. And finally, celebrating Passover, celebrating our Passover to be more precise. So first of all, pressing on despite opposition. Uh, if we remember back from Ezra chapter 5, the governors and the officials beyond the river have bent over backwards to try to get the building project, the temple and Jerusalem stopped. They don't like that going on. There's a lot of envy and jealousy happening. Uh, they believe that they are somehow entitled to the land. And so they want to pull out all the stops and to prevent any more progress from happening. But despite all that, the people of God, the Jews, continue to build and wait on the verdict from King Darius. Governor Tatani appeals to King Darius. King Darius is the new Medo-Persian king, so there's a new sheriff in town. And he's trying to see if he can get the Jews' work on the temple and on Jerusalem stopped. He wants to have it officially stopped. And so Tatanai writes a letter to Darius officially requesting that the work be stopped. What is Tatanai's motivation for doing so? Well, either Tatanai is skeptical about whether Cyrus actually did issue a decree years ago to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, 
or he's just trying to influence and perhaps even uh, manipulate the new Persian king, Darius, uh, to reverse what Cyrus had decreed. Either way, he's trying to throw a wrench into the progress that the Jews are making in Jerusalem right now. Whatever the case is, it is a beautiful thing the way the Lord turns his efforts around, uh, quite ironically, and uses these efforts to stop their progress, to actually further their progress. And so there's, there's a lot of uh, beautiful irony in this passage. Whatever God's enemies mean for evil, he turns around quite miraculously for good. He does that all throughout Scripture, and this passage is no, um, no different. So the, the plans that Tatanai and these regional governors are putting into place uh, not only are not successful, they actually backfire. They have the opposite result. Once the record of Cyrus's decree is found in a place called Ekbatana, which is actually outside of Babylon, Darius actually doubles down and gives financial support to the Jews and gives reauthorization for this project to continue full force. And he actually ensures protection of these exiled Jews as they're rebuilding. So not only does he not stop their progress, he actually gives fresh support to it. He gives fresh impetus and encouragement to it, which almost sounds too good to be true in this story because there's been one uh, roadblock and opposition after another. But it is, it is satisfying to read that the way that these um, people have opposed the building of the temple in Jerusalem and, and now their efforts are backfiring. So when they see, receive Darius's reply, when Darius receives the letter from Tatanai and sends a reply back, the exiles are more encouraged than they've ever been to continue building and to finish the project. Sometimes we're hesitant as Christians to uh, receive uh, and to accept um, help from the government, and we do, we're hesitant for good reasons sometimes, because sometimes governmental help sometimes comes with governmental control. And so churches and, and Christian organizations are often very wary of accepting help from government. But not so here. Uh, Darius is basically offering them a blank check Whatever you need, he says, um, all they need to do is request it, and he'll provide not only what is needed for the building in terms of bricks and mortar and so forth, but, but actually uh, sacrificial animals and so forth, what they will need for uh, their way of life from day to day, carrying out the sacrificial system and, and worship. So all they need to do is say the word, and Darius offers to provide whatever they need. Now, Darius is much like Cyrus before him um, 18 years ago or so. He is partially motivated by self-interest and by political motivations. He wants the Jews to remain loyal to him, particularly since his grip on some of the other nations in the vicinity has weakened a bit. And so he he wants the Jews to, to be loyal. So he's motivated by that a bit. And also, like Cyrus... Darius is a very good polytheist. He's not specifically or not exclusively devoted to Yahweh, 
He wants to cover all his bases theologically. And so he wants to appeal to the gods of all the nations around him. And he only views Yahweh as one among many. So a good polytheist, just like Cyrus is. He wants the prayers of the people, uh, the Jews, just like he wants the prayers of other nations in the area. So he'll take whatever divine help he can get, so to speak. But Darius is not really interested in divine control or direct control, I should say, in what's going on in Jerusalem. And he feels like Tatani and company are probably too involved themselves in the project. And so he says to Tatani and the opposition, leave these Jews alone, you know, hands off, get out of their way, let them do what they're trying to do. And so he issues a very, very stern warning to anyone who dares to interfere in what's going on there. He threatens severe sanctions, you might say uh, poetic justice to anyone who uh, interferes with this edict. So the returned exiles are trying again to finish this rebuilding project and they're facing one roadblock after another, one challenge after another, and they are holding their breath as they wait for Darius's reply to come back to Tatanai. So they're, they're hoping for the best, but at the same time they're preparing themselves for the worst. They're trying to hurry up and make whatever progress they can before this reply comes back from Darius. And then finally, Darius's long-awaited reply letter comes, and it's from a pretty remote, obscure location called Ekbatana, which is actually 300 miles away from Babylon. It's in present-day northern Iran, where the climate is very temperate, and that is the reason that Cyrus would go and spend his summers there. Uh, the summers are very, very mild and pleasant in Ekbatana during that time of the year, very cold during the winter. So Cyrus would go there and spend his summers. So it makes sense that these important records of Cyrus's decree uh, were kept there. But think about what would happen if no one had ever thought to look at Ekbatana, this remote location a long way away from Babylonia. But in the Lord's providence, they did make a search there and they found the records that indeed Cyrus did make a decree 18 years prior. And so that word comes back at long last. And can you imagine how encouraged the Jewish people would have been to hear that? How relieved they would have been. So finally, at long last, they have the green light to go forward with this project and to finish building without having to deal with another round of opposition from those pesky Samaritans who won't leave them alone. And surely they must have thought, this, this has the stamp of God all over it. This is from the Lord. The Lord is, is paving the way for this to happen. It probably sounded too good to be true to him. And things that sound too good to be true, of course, normally are, unless the Lord is right in the middle of it, unfolding it. And we see here that that's exactly what's happening. Uh, God is able to do exceeding abundantly, far beyond anything we ask or even imagine. And Darius is the second foreign king whose will God sovereignly turns uh, like water uh, in the hand of a king. 
any way he pleases. He did that before with Cyrus, and he's doing it again here with Darius. And Darius is showing great favor to the Jews as a result. So God turns this around in such a way that benefits his people as they seek to carry out his will. And more to the point, I think, he does it to glorify himself and ensure that from Jerusalem, once again, after 70 years, God's high and holy name will be lifted up in praise yet again. And the story of redemption will take one huge step forward to the coming of the one who will, of course, replace the temple one day. So, when we're serving God and opposition comes, which it inevitably will, y'all know that by now, we've all been Christians for a while, we know that anytime we try to do something worthwhile for the Lord, there's going to be opposition, there will be problems. But this is a reminder that we don't have to be intimidated, we don't have to despair, we don't have to get discouraged. We can expect opposition and we can be ready when it does come. Because again and again, the Lord, doesn't he? He uses that opposition of the world to bring about great advances for his people. Advances that would not come otherwise without that opposition. These people who were opposing the Jews may have their sinister motives, but God can and does override those motives for his own good purposes. Now, that might mean some pain and some suffering and some heartache for God's people in the meantime, but again, this is the way the Lord works, and so we don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to be surprised when opposition comes. We can actually expect prayerfully for God to use that opposition for redemptive purposes. So the gates of hell, we're reminded, will never prevail against the church of Christ, though they will try. So here, God's people are building the temple, but in a larger sense, Christ is already building his church. He's preparing his community of faith for the Christ to come. And the the more the world tries to stamp out the fire of the church, the more it only succeeds in spreading those embers all over the world. We've seen this time and time again through church history. Uh, God's people have always been persecuted, and God has always been a step ahead of that, using that persecution to further his purposes. Now, we're not building um, a a temple in Jerusalem um, or building a city, but the New Testament particularly Peter, reminds us that we are spiritual stones who are being built into a spiritual house. And the chief resident of that house is the Holy Spirit himself. And so God will stop at nothing, whether it's a godless government who opposes us or or an evil empire or whatever the case may be, um, natural disasters or whatever, God will stop at nothing to bring his church to completion, to continue building his church to make it what he intends. So let's be encouraged to expect opposition, to not be surprised when it comes. And when it does, to to stand strong and to continue to persevere in spite of it and to be bold and to be courageous and to be wise and to pay attention to how God is working right in the midst of it. He can and does bring about great blessing in ways that we will never imagine. 
So they completed their work, Ezra tells us here in verse 14, through the decree of Darius. But look at what he tells us in the next breath. He tells us they also completed it by the decree of God. So which was it? Was it the decree of Darius or was it the decree of God? Well, of course, you all know the answer is yes, it was both. It was ultimately the decree of God because for his own purposes, according to the counsel of his will, he works out everything in conformity with his purposes. So God decrees everything that comes to pass. Things only come to pass because God has decreed them. But he's also ordained the means to those ends, hasn't he? And one of the means to that, in this case, was Cyrus's and, again, Darius's decree. So God decreed that his people would return and eventually see this project all the way through. And he used this pagan king's edict to ensure that that would be the case. So even the decrees of a pagan king are used in the hands of our sovereign God. That should be a great encouragement to us, I believe. God can and will override whatever opposition we face as we seek to carry out his plans and be faithful to him. So we can take that to heart. And maybe it gives us a little more boldness in trying to be faithful to him when we're opposed. So... Second point I'd like to make this evening is that God's people prosper through preaching. God's people prosper through preaching. At least in temporal ways, where does Ezra give the credit for the success of this venture, the success of the exiles as they rebuild the temple and Jerusalem? They faced a ton of opposition since they've arrived back here, one thing after another, But in chapter 6, we see that they finally manage to see the project through. They finally complete the project. And this is about 20 years or so after their return from Babylon. So where did the fresh energy or the impetus come to finally make the last push and get this job done? Well, verse 14 says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. Think back to how the Jews responded to past opposition. It wasn't the most exemplary way to respond, was it? They lost interest initially, and their enthusiasm waned. And in the absence of good, strong leadership, they began to procrastinate on that project. And they turned their attention to their own selfish pursuits and away from the house of God And you remember how they started working on adorning their own houses with wood paneling rather than focusing on what was best for the Lord's house. And God was not pleased with that. He was very patient with his people, but that's not something that pleased him. But God does not give up on his people. That's one lesson we see again and again in Scripture. Instead, what he does is God sends them two men of God, two prophets, One of them is Haggai and the other is Zechariah. And they're two very, very different prophets. Their styles are completely different. Um, In Haggai's case, what he does is more forth-telling. He's not so much uh, predicting the future as he is taking ancient truth and applying it to God's people's situation with with laser-guided focus, you might say. 
he's, he's very fiery in his preaching and he, he doesn't pull his punches. Now, Zechariah, on the other hand, is more of a foreteller. And he paints these, these beautiful pictures of what's coming for God's people. And he, he gives us some of the most vivid uh, um, portraits of, of Christ the Messiah who will come later. Some of the most vivid prophecies of his coming. But together, uh, they make a dynamic duo, preaching-wise. Very different temperaments, very different styles, but God uses both of them in mighty ways to encourage the people to get to work. And that's exactly what they do. So Haggai directly confronts the people in their sin of putting their interest ahead of God's interest. He meets them head on with that. Haggai does not mince words, but he speaks truth to error. Zechariah, on the other hand, gives us those amazing prophecies of Christ. Well, thankfully, the people's hearts are very teachable. They respond beautifully to the preaching of both Haggai and Zechariah. And so they get to work straight away after hearing the preaching. They don't put it off, but they, they get back down to work and they repair the house of the Lord. And God blesses them tremendously when they do that. So Ezra tells us here why they prospered. It was through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, two men that God sent as arrows very specifically to his people uh, with truth at the right time. So their hearts were receptive when the word was preached to them and they responded with obedience. And that's a beautiful thing. That's how the Lord's church prospers. Uh, Churches don't prosper through entertainment. Uh, Entertainment may attract a crowd. Um, It may build up numbers, but that is not necessarily the same thing as prospering in God's economy. Uh, God's people don't prosper by hearing stories that tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear. That's not how God's church grows. They prosper when the preaching is direct and it's clear and it's biblical and it's Christocentric and it's God-glorifying because that kind of preaching exposes people's sin, exposes the sin of preachers, and it causes us to go to the throne of grace and receive the help and the grace and the mercy that God is only too um, ready to give us when we call out for it. So if we want to flourish as a congregation, we want to flourish uh, in our own personal growth with Christ as individuals and as a congregation, we've got to put ourselves regularly under the preaching of God's word. And that's not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, that's also every day. We've got to be feeding on the scriptures and the the green pastures that our Lord leads us to. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can what? So that we can test and approve what God's perfect will is. So God is faithful always to provide his people with faithful prophets and with apostles and with teachers and preachers who preach his word unapologetically. Uh, We're celebrating the Reformation again uh, during October as we do every year. The fact that God renewed his church with powerful preachers of the word who took God's people back to the scriptures, back to the sources, and renewed the church through that powerful preaching. Now, Of course, we don't have prophets and apostles anymore, but what we do have is prophetic authority, don't we? An apostolic authority vested in the scriptures. 
And as those are preached faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can and should expect reformation and revival to take place as God sees fit to send it. So, God's people always need a steady diet of that word preached to them by faithful men if they're going to prosper by his standards. And in this case, prospering looked like them finishing this building project on the temple. In our case, prospering looks like human stones that the Lord is raising up to build his church that's indwelt by his Holy Spirit. Each of them contributing what they've been gifted by Christ to contribute to it so that his name might be proclaimed in the world. Okay, well, I got through two of my points tonight. And uh, I'll have to save the last one for another time. But why don't we transition at this point to a time of prayer. Why don't we begin by praising God for who he is. Um, Our God, Westminster Standards, remind us is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Let's praise the Lord for who he is and for the wonderful things he's done for us. Um, If you would, pray those things out loud uh, for the benefit of all to hear. Let's pray together.